Bam 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 Everyone, you're here, we're here. Welcome back. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome back to Go Help Yourself. It's a comedy self-help podcast to make life suck less. Maybe. We don't have any guarantees. We're not doctors, physicians, They're, therapists of any kind. They can't guarantee either. Really not qualified at all. And yet which makes keep... us perfect to be talking about self-help. Yeah, I guess, which we've learned you don't need any qualifications. It's true. And listen, joke's on you because you all keep tuning in. <laughs> So this is a comedy self-help podcast to make life suck less. Yes. Every week, yes. we read and review a popular self-help book. Yeah. We want to share with you the good things about it, the golden nuggets of wisdom. That's great. I want to tell you what's a heaping dumpster fire that you should avoid. Either way, you can take one of those things and make earrings out of them. Both. And wear them. Yeah. Um, left ear is trash. Right ear is or gold. Like, use both to make a modified suggestion or version for yourself. Cover the gold nugget in poop. What? And then wear it. I'm not. What I'm giving is not poop. What? You just. Everyone, look, lean in close. We're doing our best. Yeah. We're reading the books so that you, you don't, don't have, have to, to if you don't want to. But you can sort of glean the popular points of a self-help book. Get that life-altering self-help you advice can, and perspective. You can tell yourself you're moving forward. You can continue that narrative. You can tell your parents you are. Yeah. You can say, well, listen. I'm, re I'm reading all these books. Yeah. Well, it, that would be sort of not true. But what you could say if you wanted to keep it sort of gray area is like, I've absorbed the information. I mean, of more than 50 self-help books. Book, you're technically not reading it. Yeah, that's right. Lisa is doing Do wide eyes at me. So, so our what we're saying is that I read like five books last year <laughs> instead of the like 28 or whatever we no, each did. I, listen, the point is, <laughs> we're going to move right past It that. doesn't matter. And you can become either the person who eruditely quotes statistics or current popular You're going to learn words like eruditely. Or you can become the person who's so fucking annoying because you're like, actually, in Mark Manson's um, how The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, we're all going to die. But as Lisa suggested to me so kindly on an episode a couple of months ago, if you just take out the word actually, it makes you sound like way less of an asshole. Actually, it does. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, anyway, we cuss. So we cuss. That's why there's an explicit rating. And if you don't like it, get the fuck out. Speaking of ratings. Oh, yes. If you wouldn't mind... And I, if you do mind, why are you listening? Please <laughs> just flip, flick it down and a touch flick a, and a star. Tap, a flick and a tap. Now, I'm going to say give us a five star. What Lisa's trying to say is we would really love it if you took the time to give us a rating. What I'm trying to say is why the fuck haven't you already? Yes, a rating and a review. Even if the review is a uh, new podcast, who dis? Yes. But you do a five star <laughs> Or whatever you think the podcast is Mist, worth. Look, Misty's nice. We're giving, we're adding so much value to your life. Oh, what? Why wouldn't it be a five star? You no, know, it's true. This is free fifty. What's free fifty? 
That's how much this podcast costs everyone. It's free 50 for them. Oh. For us, it's not free 50. No, it's <laughs> so please, more than free 50. It's, it's dollars. It's <laughs> lots of dollars. So please, if you haven't already, it helps us so much. People are finding our podcast yes. more and more. Because of the people who have taken the time to rate and review. And we're grateful for you. Yeah. We're oh, so grateful. Those people are on my A-list. The rest of you are on my dead to me list oh that's called the d list thank you you get it so lisa yeah you have prepared a bark i've prepared a bark today i've prepared a bark today for longtime loyal listeners um you might remember at the end of last year on our i think it was our rear end to the year end episode yeah. i gave gifts yes to sav and to misty and you have <laughs> no one gave me gifts back um and we didn't know and then no we didn't know she was okay here in the lovely confines of fairfax village studios um i bought books <laughs> that were about self-help i got a little meta yes. for 2020 and yes. gave us the assignment to cover maybe like one a quarter yes um and we had some of like the original self help book by mm-hmm. Samuel Smiles, mm-hmm. and then um, one of them, which I prepared today, is Oracle at the Supermarket: The American Preoccupation with Self Help Books by Stephen Sturker. It's so funny the the title and the cover does not make me want to read this book at all. Well, listen, Oracle at the Supermarket. I feel like it's going to be like. Grab a bouquet of broccoli and get in touch with its vibes. So. Stephen Starker is basically a uh, uh, academic, okay, and I be- this this feels like post doctorate work, right? Okay. Like he is um, uh, interesting, and this is more of a this could be a graduate level book. Oh, is it tough to read? No. Um, but it's, you know, there's citations at the end of every chapter. It's a review of lots of studies and yeah. um. We can get into that. But okay. let me just kind of run down. Great. It was first copyrighted. Mm-hmm. It's not copyright. So, yeah. Yeah. The copyright was first copyrighted in 1989. Um, this, the, the print that I have is the third paperback printing in 2008. Okay. A used paperback is 590. A used hardcover is 1350. There is no audio version. Used hardcover is 1350. I mean, it's a fancy book. Well, they don't make them anymore. Right. Right. So I had a hard time finding information about the author. Oh, because no website? No, because he's an academic. Right. And so what I found from Amazon and Google Books, he's the chief psychology service of Portland's Veterans Medical Center and a professor of media sociology at Oregon Health Sciences University. He's the chief psychology service? He's the chief, comma, psychology service, comma, oh. Portland Veterans Medical Center. Oh, got it. So- not of the emergency service or the... Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank you. He is the author of numerous works, including Oracle at the Supermarket and The Power of Fantasy and Human Creativity. Oh. Um, he's also... Uh, his previous works also include this on the back of the book, Parathink, The Paranoia of Everyday Life, mm. and Fantastic Thought, as well as numerous professional uh, articles. Okay. So um, this book Vagarino. has... This book has... a Well, he's an academic. He's not like a... A published author in terms of... Yeah. Right. This book has 11 chapters, um, including a preface, acknowledgement, appendix, bibliography, and index. I love a bibliography. The chapters are, one, The New Oracle, An Introduction to the Study of Self-Help Books. Two, Gospel of Success, Early Self-Help Books in America. Three, Power to Heal, The Discovery of Mind Cure. Four, Approaching the Mainstream, Self-Help and the Establishment. 
Five, classical self-help, the early blockbusters. Uh-huh. Six, behind closed doors, the search for sexual guidance. Uh-huh. Seven, body and soul, although I realize I've written boy and soul. Uh-huh. Not mad at it. The oracle at mid-century. Eight, the selfish years, pop psychology and the me generation. Nine, healthy, wealthy, and wise, finding fulfillment in the 80s. Ten, prescriptions, <laughs> promises, help, harm, and hope in the genre. And 11, conclusion, the message of the oracle. Okay, I... Based on that cover and the title, not in that chapter list, I am on the edge of my seat. Truly? Yes. Same. Oh my God. I love We're about to learn so much about self help. Misty, this clarified so much for me. This is a (laughs) history book, too. (laughs) It really should have. Although I think it would have tainted a lot of our review. Oh, so everyone. Buckle in because yeah. the podcast is about to change. Okay, so this book was amazing at giving history mm-hmm. and providing context around why self-help books were so popular wow. and how the different movements of self-help came to be. Oh, my God. So I cannot go in-depth as the book is, even yes. though it's only 173 pages of text. And, oh, that's, that is short. But he does such a good job. Like, it's mm-hmm. truly incredible. Um, and each chapter has a lengthy notation list at the end of each. Great. It's, it's great. Great. Um, so... Uh, Some chapters I'm not going to go into detail um, because I want to be mindful of time and some chapters I will. Chapter one. So he talks about like the Oracle at Delphi and like how human experience seeking knowledge is like a sacred just kind of thing that that all humans do. Yes. (laughs) Missy's like that coffee. I yawned so much while she said that and it wasn't about Lisa's performance. I mean, I you know. It's about my own. I'll take it to heart. I'll, I'll, I'll. Yeah, I'll pump it up for you. Um, It says, we now find ourselves in an era when self-help books have made themselves a central part of the American popular culture. I'll say. Dispensing advice on literally all aspects of everyday life. I'll say. So then he lays out his thesis about self-help on page two, which I appreciated. And this was all 1989. Any Uh, of this updated for 2008? I don't know what's updated. Look, either way, that's still... 12 years ago, right? If it's 2008. Oh, I was like, 1989? No, girl, that's no, a little girl. more. Yeah. Here's his thesis. He says, <clears throat> It is my thesis, nevertheless, that the self-help book is a firm part of the fabric of American culture. Mm. Too pervasive and influential to be ignored or lightly dismissed and certainly worthy of investigation. Along with television and the motion picture, the self-help book is, at the very least, an important reflection of enduring human concerns and changing social needs. Yes. Unlike these other media, however, it is also an explicit instruction manual for achieving health, wealth, and happiness. Mm. What it is saying to our ch- what is it saying to our children, our neighbors, our parents, our spouses, and why are they willing to listen? What do we really know about this new oracle at the supermarket? Thank you. Yeah. So um, he gives an account of like the sheer volume of books published. So just trying to like credit his thesis. Well, also in a really academic way, he's coming in with a lot of side eye and being like, why should we listen to this person? Well, I mean, we we don't we don't question that TV and movies influence our culture. Right. And he's saying we should put these. Yes. Equal. Equal. Yes. Yeah. Um, so he talks about like the sheer volume of books published in different decades. Mm-hmm. And so publishing industry, the publishing industry has like their own annual journals of like books in print mm-hmm. for decades and individual years. And those are broken down by category. So he can go back and research and look. Um, I wonder, I wonder what the, how pervasive it was then versus now. 
Well, he, what there's a lot like. of that stuff that he talks about in here. So, like, in 1978... Um, uh, they were just talking about childcare books. It says that the number of childcare books sold in the U.S. during the five-year period between, um, I believe, it's seventy-three to seventy-eight, was about twenty-three million. Whoa! And some of these titles, he does a great job of giving titles: um, infants and mothers, between parent and child, son and daughter signs, an astrological gi- guide to childcare, <laughs> hypnosis, and your child. Toilet training in less than a day. Like, whoa. All of these, right? Um, and the lack of expertise needed. So here's one of my favorite. According to two health and science experts, quote, anyone, even with persons without an iota of nutritional training, can design, develop, publish, and promote a diet. All it takes is an idea and the ability to string some words together. Okay. Uh, anyone who is listening and works for a publishing house, near a publishing house, has thought about a publishing house, or like your aunt is the editor at so and so, write to us at gohelpyourselfpodcast.com. We want to we we interview. So many and we ideas. Have an ideas. And by the way, now we can be like, here's what the front of the cover says, right? On our, our seminal book, Can't Help Me. It's, it's, uh, from the uh, hosts of the smash hit podcast <laughs> with international so many reviews with, it broke with apple podcast so many over 113 reviews <laughs> um no it's going to say they've read over 100 self help books that's amazing okay so <clears throat> um he so uh uh he does this <laughs> from 1983 to 1984 the books in print, right? So for the publishing industry, he just takes a look at some of the categories um, and titles. So they broke down the um, the self-help category into, and these are different subcategories, self-acceptance, self-actualization, self-control, self-realization, self-reliance, self-respect. And he says, most of us, I suspect, Jesus. would have difficulty knowing whether we had actualized, realized, or merely accepted ourselves. I'm self-questioning. Right? How do you say that? So he goes ahead and talks about how four factors make this, quote, new oracle power- powerful. Cost, accessibility, privacy, and excitement. Right, because back then it's like, uh, isn't this what your mom was talking about when she came on that – Back in the day, when people wouldn't talk about their problems or their family problems, well, that's under one the of privacy, the, right? Yes, yeah. So, one of the only places to sort of go for guidance in a non-stigmatized way was to pick up a self-help book. So, cost instead of seeking medical treatment, yes, it's cheaper. Yes, accessibility, it's much easier. Like if you make an appointment with a therapist, sometimes it can take or a med- you know, Forever. or if you live remotely, there's a waiting mm-hmm. list. And then the privacy, yeah. If it's something that you're uncomfortable talking about, you can do it individually with a book. Well, and then there's this question if even if it's more accessible, more cost effective, et cetera, is it as effective? Right. Which is TBD his whole point based of this book. on the um, And then the excitement. Like when a new quote unquote like wave or something comes up, everybody yeah, wants here's to a jump new on reframe. Board. That's right. Um and he also created some dimensional criteria that I think we might adapt moving forward. What ooh. So um he then uh, created three different uh, w- like ways to identify self help mm-hmm. books. Is it anecdotal versus informational? Meaning, is it just stories or are there empirical data and facts? Thank you. Right. So, like the secret versus the charisma myth. Yeah. Um, is it prescriptive versus descriptive? So, prescriptive is rules and directions. Do this, and you will get that. 
uh-huh. versus numerous procedures or techniques, not prescribing anyone in particular. I feel like the upside of your dark side was very descriptive mm-hmm. and you're a badass is very prescriptive. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. I like the ones Although, that are descriptive. We do. We tend to like sprinkle. That. And then the third is closed versus open. A closed is a self-contained philosophy complete unto itself. Oh. And open encourages access to new information and making it fit for you. Okay. I like open. Yeah, we do. Also, just because it's been too long, I just want to say, fuck you, Gay Hendrix. Thank you. Thank you. I did find myself saying upper limit problem the other day. I I said zone of genius the other day. It was in a way that I was making fun of the book because I was like, I did too. I, I was, was like, like, look, if you're a single tell. mother with four jobs, you cannot be like, I'm working in my, I'm going to give this up to work in my zone of genius. Thank you. Okay. So that's chapter one. Chapter two, which I'll remind you is Gospel of Success, <laughs> Early Self-Help Books in America. I know. I, <laughs> fuck you. Because <laughs> I'll remind you. I knew it. No, you didn't. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, you did. Okay. This is the chapter that blew my mind and got me so excited about this book. The roots of self-help literature in America are to be found among the traditions and values of Protestant New England. Oh, All of self-help is basically rooted in religion. Oh, my God. Especially the American version of self-help. Oh, my God. Yeah. Everything we're reading today is a derivation of religion. Which is interesting because I keep going like, I love self-help and I'm not religious. So... Puritans were like most of the 85% of the churches I believe in in New England were Puritan Mm -hmm. and they believed in predestination, which means that like your outcome, heaven or hell is already determined by the time you're born. But they also believe that God created like a rational universe. And so if man lived up to his obligations to God, then God might be expected to reciprocate. Right. Okay. So, um, which was different than Calvinism. Calvinism, because I took a comparative religion class. So like Calvinism believed when you were born, it was predetermined, but Puritans are maybe less than a little bit of predestination of like how you behave yeah. is what gets you heaven or hell. Well, listen, we're not going to answer this right now, but like in Calvinism, then what's the point? If it's yeah. already predetermined, what's the point in going through life at all? Well, you assume that you have, you assume that you're going to heaven and you behave as if you are. Oh, but if it's predetermined you're going to hell and you're just living this well, you have holy a life. You have a choice. Okay. Um, so so if man lived up to his obligations to God, then God might be expected to reciprocate, right? Okay. So in this broad framework of determinism, individuals could have some role in determining the quality of their lives. Okay. And Puritan leaders wrote works to provide guidelines for behavior to leading a devout life. Okay. So in 1611, Bishop Bailey's Practice of Piety and 1673, Samuel Hardy's Guide to Heaven. These were all written by religious leaders. Oh, really presumptuous titles. Well. Guide to heaven. But that was their mindset. Yeah. Is that I needed a guide in order to live yeah. a life that would. Yep. Al- right. Yep. And then Cotton Mather. I don't know if you remember. Uh-huh, that name is very familiar from history. Yes. 1710, he wrote Essays to Do Good. It's a Puritan self-help guide. Wow. So. The original self-help volumes in America were all rooted in religion, all of them. And all the derivations from are either in reaction to that, but are still closely to it, or just kind of subsequent theories of that. Wow. By the 18th century, he says self-help works were becoming far more secular. So this is when Benjamin Franklin wrote The Way to Wealth and mm-hmm. Poor Richard's Almanac, and they mm-hmm. were 
there were practical advice of how to make something from yourself, as he did, because right. he didn't. He wasn't born into money. And although they were basically the same as Cotton Mather's Protestant teachings, they were just written for a bigger base, right? And more secular. But they're modeled after this. One hundred percent. They say the same thing. Yeah. They yeah, say yeah, the yeah. same thing. It's just written not from not for a sectarian audience. Here's what I want to do. I want to release a self help book, but under pseudonyms, like you and I write it. And we just say the same things everyone else has been saying, but worded slightly different. And we put a spin on it, like, girly self-help. <laughs> I love it. And then we see what happens. Um, it's like when J.K. Rowling uh, oh yeah, about Robert Galbraith. Oh, God. Um, so I'm just compared us to J.K. Rowling. Thank you. Benjamin Franklin didn't, like, have the corner of the market on this. There were still religious leaders writing self-help books. And I just want oh, to read you. Oh, interesting. Well, Guide to Wealth, he should have really cornered the market if— <laughs> He wanted to have true wealth. Misty is incredibly sassy today. <laughs> I got eight hours of sleep. Okay. Okay. And I'm, we you didn't on. see the cup of coffee I had in the car, but I'm holding a nice big thermos of it right now. We are on chapter two. <laughs> but it, we're having fun. We're having so much fun. Don't stress out when we go an hour. Okay. That's what I'm just going to say. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. So I'm just going to read you some of the authors and titles because these are amazing. So, um, Mason Locke Weems, known as Parson Weems. Um, it's a hot name. Yes. Uh, he wrote a lot of these and all these. <laughs> Parson all Weems. These, uh-huh. Get at me. Thank you. Slide into my DMs. All of. Oh, my God. You. I. <laughs> this is not the Misty I'm used to. I'm loving it. I know. It. It's way more fun than it's normal It's so much more Misty. fun. Um, these are all of his titles and subsequent like, Why sequels. Why did you just agree with that? Because it's true. <laughs> Sad. I'm so upset. Let's keep going. Um, the Immortal Mentor or Man's Unerring Guide to a Healthy, Wealthy, and Happy Life. This was endorsed by George Washington. Whoa. Um, then I'm like a book endorsed by He George did Washington. God's Revenge Against Murder, God's Revenge Against Gambling, God's Revenge Against Adultery, The Drunkard's Looking Glass, mm-hmm. and The Bad Wife's Looking Glass. Like, Listen, I love a self help book with an element of fear. <laughs> Um, And by the 18th century, self-help was on its way from just a moral guidance to more like practical and useful knowledge. So the first half of the 19th century, this is when it really also started. The bad wife's revenge on her philandering drunken husband. Yes. So Andrew Jackson was elected. Keep going. Nope. Keep going. I was going to have a subtitle, which is like, how to murder him in the most painful way when he's not sleeping. Yes. A guide endorsed by Martha Washington. Thank you. Thank you. Um, (laughs) Okay, so this was the first part of the chapter that really started to make this book so powerful for me. Andrew Jackson was uh, elected in the first half of the 19th century. And in a Jacksonian presidency, there was significant social and economic change. So there's industrialization, manufacturing, population explosion, city city oh, size cool. were so doubling. So we can blame him for climate change. No. Um, opportunities were rampant and people were focused on the pursuit of wealth and the and millionaires came to be like well known. So here's the paragraph that I'm going to read to you. It was in the Jacksonian, oh no, oh, here we go. Jacksonian democracy was encouraging to personal ambition, social mobility, opportunism, and the unbridled pursuit of wealth and luxury. Many observers were alarmed at the quote moral disintegration they perceived and saw the cities in particular as breeding grounds for sin and avarice. Social controls and restraints were clearly weakening and the need for personal internal controls was becoming significantly greater. Mm. So this is when the McGuffey reader was born and these were children's texts written 
written by William H. McGuffey. They were self-improvement books aimed directly at elementary school children. Because you got to get them young. Yes. Um, And so they really uh, emphasized the uh, individual effort. And they also acquainted children with traditional values of restraint, moderation, and conscience. But like Hmm. a typical McGuffey lesson, try, try again. If you find your task is hard, try, try again. Time will bring your you re, time will bring you your reward. Try, try again. All that other folks can do, why with patience should not you? Only keep this rule in view. Try, try again. Oh, but the phrase "try, try again" is ubiquitous. Yes, yeah. You're gonna we're gonna hear a lot of phrases from self help books that are now ubiquitous in our culture. This is amazing. Yes, so. Writers of guides to young men and young men in this period preceding the Civil War offered advice on how white men, how one might succeed while remaining a decent human being. I like that. Yes, but also decent's relative. Yeah. So here's what's so interesting. So the problems created by rapid social change prior to the Civil War, and I'm quoting him here, they were not to be dismissed. They returned with inventions after the fighting ended. The post-war period was marked by continued industrial and urban expansion. Between 1860 and 1900, the number of cities of 8,000 or more people nearly quadrupled. Wow. And by 1900, nearly one of every three Americans lived in such cities. That's good for readership. As That's right. As one consequence of these economic and social changes, many new fortunes were established. Mm-mm. The, quote, millionaire suddenly became a prominent figure with Andrew Carnegie as a symbol of rags to riches. And don't be confused by whom you might think his relative is, Dale Carnegie. That's right. How to win friends and influence people because he changed his name. That's right. And books on how to succeed became increasingly popular as everyone sought the shortcut to great wealth. So, um, because they're seeing all these people around them yes. become wealthy and going, wait, they did it. Why can't I do it? Well, that's right. And so, like, in this time of great expansion was the opportunity for great wealth. Right. And in this American idea of, like, individualism, it can happen for me. Right. And combined with, like, this idea of Protestant work ethic, whether it's secular or sectarian, really was, like, this perfect storm for these books to thrive. Oh, my God. I know. It's really kind of fascinating. And so now comes new thought, my friends. Oh. Are you ready for this? Okay. Lisa. This is where we spend most of our time on this. Oh. Because this is, this explains everything to me. Your strategy brain and my strategy brain. is glowing. I'm tingling because it explained everything to me. New thought for a new era. In reaching the late 19th and early 20th centuries, we enter an era deserving of more detailed examination. This period saw an outpouring of self-help books of a new kind, reflecting a powerful new philosophy. The ramifications of this philosophy have reverberated throughout most of the 20th century, and I'll say 21st, mm-hmm. influencing millions of lies, lives and lives. Oh, that was a Freudian it sure was. if I ever saw <laughs> It was during this era as well that a, specula- a specialization and speculation wow, began. Lisa's, this is right. Right with Freudian slips. Lisa's positive new thoughts Thank are you. really coming out. This specialization began to take place within the self-help genre, with therapeutics gradually branching off from, from more generalized success tracks. We will begin with the broader category of success literature before moving into the specifically therapeutic in the next chapter, which okay. is called The Mind Cure. So oh, okay. it was clear by the latter part of the 19th century that the classic self-help tradition with its foundation in Puritan values and virtues was no longer relevant to the new American culture and problems. Yeah, we want money. Yeah, an urban industrial, increasingly scientific America desperately needed a new philosophy to provide hope and guidance to those confused and demoralized by rapid societal changes. Right. Right. So like I'm living in a city where I don't know my neighbors. These good works 
doesn't right. fit me. It doesn't necessarily apply if it's all about community. And also, there's this other, and I'm sure we'll get there eventually, but what happens when you're told, like, okay, like, uh, the last missing piece is wealth, and once you have wealth, you'll be happy, and then you get wealthy, and you're like, I'm not happy, and it or breeds a whole new. you don't achieve wealth, and you have to keep going and going and going, and you're right, not right, reaching right. it. Right, right, right. But it's right. like, oh, okay, I've, now I've met all the you're criteria. Right. This philosophy appeared as a popular religious movement that transcended the traditional dominations and included among its membership such groups as Harmony, Unity, Mental Science, oh. Metaphysical Healing, Divine Science, Church of Religious Science, and others. It is best known by the umbrella term, New Thought. Can you add science to the end of some of those, though? Feels like a stretch. Well, like here's why. Okay. New Thought dedicated itself to an affirmation of, and this is quoting, the divinity of man and his infinite possibilities through the creative power of constructive thinking and obedience to the voice of the indwelling presence, which is our source in inspiration, power, health, and prosperity. So this guy named Ralph Waldo Treen or Trine in 1897 published In Tune with the Infinite or Fullness of Peace, Power, and Plenty. And it attempted to provide a version a version of religion that was at once relevant to the times, practical, and immediately useful. And this turn of the century, science is now becoming like a thing mm. and that scientists are now gaining power and whatnot. And clout. Mm -hmm. So consequently, it concentrated on teaching people a new technique for achieving worldly success and health, a method that bore vanishingly little relation to the Protestant ethic. Your thoughts. The secret lay with, quote, mind power. Mm. All one needed to do to achieve the heart's desire was learn to use the mind properly to communicate one's wishes to God. The new thought writers were not speaking of the anthropomorphic God of old, but a spiritual power or force called alternatively divine intelligence, oversoul, spirit of infinite life and power, universal intelligence, oversoul. and so on. So trying another new thought writers owed an intellectual debt to, get this, Ralph Waldo Emerson. What? Who's, uh, but who's, this is Ralph Waldo trying. I know. Transcendentalism was an earlier reaction against materialism. Oh, so Emerson had written against materialism and um, Emerson and New Thought refused to consider humanity as shaped by external forces and they preferred to see individual as the architect of his or her own life. Well, isn't that so comforting to think I'm in control and I can do this? In this and time of I'll rapid change and uncertainty. Out of the chaos. Like, no wonder yes. this came up. So, yes. You see, like, yes. immediately I was like, I understand People where are like, thought ah, came this from. is fucking terrifying. What do I do? And they're like, the answers are all within you. They've always been within you. And mm -hmm. you're like, oh. So rather than powerless pawns of industry, politics, and urbanism, he says, people were properly to be viewed as important, mm. unique, and full of potential as local manifestations of divinity. What a balm for the turn-of-the-century ego, so yes. recently traumatized by both sweeping social changes and Darwin's unflattering views on the evolution of humanity from lower forms of life. I can see how that would be the most comforting thing. Yes! And then he gets into—that's where we start to hear the law of vibration, the law of attraction, mind attracts people in and 1897? things in um, This is Thought Force in 19—Bruce uh, McClellan's Prosperity Through Thought Force 1904. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Right? Wow. And he says, as for proof, he noted that this is not a theory but a principle. And he offered biblical interpretation and anecdote in support of his truth. So That's he's, not research. So he's – but he's – see how he, see how New Thought is taking people from religion to yes. this new – they're making it palatable. Yeah. It's a, it's a bridge over there because it's sort of – what is that – what is that thing called that we talked about um, – 
ah, in that one book where a politician will say the first part of a sentence is true. Oh, yeah. And then they'll they'll get you to agree with the last part of a sentence that's not true because they've established credibility in You're the right. first part. That's, that's what that reminds me of. Aristotle's ways. Yes, or, that's what that yeah. reminds me of. Um, he uh, he also invoked the prestigious science. It is a scientific truth, and it matters not what you think about it so long as you work to develop yourself. <laughs> Regarding technique, he proposed the constant repetition of suggestions such as I have courage or I am fearless. Ooh, those are um, uh, a nar- not narrative, assertive uh-huh. self-affirmations, uh-huh. which we just covered in uh, what book? Unfook yourself. Unfook yourself. So... Uh, uh, let's see. It, it it goes on and basically all the stuff that we're talking about suggestions for breathing in wealth, and this is far removed from Protestant ideals Wait, of on, industry. Yeah, thank you. It didn't work. Did it work? <laughs> no. Oh, so um, but New Thought wasn't without critics. So Francis Bjorkman, thank you, thank you, wrote most of it is a character. To repel persons of critical taste. (laughs) Its language is crude. It makes assertions in regard to scientific matters that cannot be proved or at least have not been proved. It is mixed up with spiritualism, astrology, mind reading, vegetarianism, reincarnation, and all sorts of other, quote, crank doctrines and fads. And with a few actual, quote, fakes. The very names of its publications are enough to make sophisticated persons smile. Okay, Robert Bjorkman, come on the podcast. Thank you. He's dead. I know. Also, I feel like he would have had this podcast if podcasts were a thing back then. For sure. That's fascinating. Isn't it? So and so for as long as there's been self-help, there's been criticism of self-help. 100%. It's amazing. I mean, probably not the Protestant work. Yeah, I was going to say everybody probably was like, thought, this feels good. This new thought definitely had its had its criticisms. Wow. So we're halfway through. We're at 30 minutes and we're through chapter two. So chapter three, a couple of these we're going to sco- scoot through. But that to me was most fascinating because we've had such a challenge with new thought works. Yeah. And um, to understand where it came from, I thought was and and understanding in context, it made perfect sense. Oh, I'm riveted. I'm completely right? riveted. And understanding that, like, the Industrial Revolution and all these new millionaires and everyone's going, well, I want that, like, yes. and I'm scared. And I'm, I'm traumatized and, and I'm living in a new, a new, literally a new society that I've never had before. When cities are suddenly a thing and they're yes. invented and they weren't before, that's got to be wild. So chapter three is the power to heal the discovery of, quote, the mind cure. Okay, so mind cure is the other side of mind of, of new thought. Okay. Not just about wealth, but that I can heal myself. Oh, okay. Louise, hey. You get it. So it says it is widely agreed that the mind cure tradition in America begins with the work of Phineas P. Quimby. You're welcome. These names are outstanding. Born in 1802, Quimby represents every mainstream health practitioner's worst nightmare. Okay. A man with very little <laughs> formal education, apprenticed to a clockmaker, Quimby became fascinated with mesmerism after attending a lecture on the subject in 1838. He then, like, pro- he made the acquaintance of the lecturer. He practiced on a 17-year-old volunteer. Um, he proclaimed himself a mesmerist and healer, and then then he discontinued mesmerism to begin treating patients according to a new theory of, of disease, one of his own devising. The theory was extremely simple, yet all-encompassing. Disease was an unfortunate delusion. Rather I, than a punishment visited by God, fucker. which is the Puritan— tradition or the natural byproduct of a physical process the medical tradition illness was an invention of man an error of the mind 
So not only was he a self-proclaimed healer, he was an extremely successful one. And so he didn't like create a lot of self-works, but all of his disciples ended up creating a lot of self-help And he's books. the original victim blamer. Yes. <laughs> well, I would Quimby, say- Quimby the victim blamer. A lot of religious people were uh, victim blamers, but- Look, if you have disease, it's because you're thinking about it. Yes. So it it falls into new thought because the therapeutics of mind cure, although usually offered in religious contexts, presented readers with practical and contemporary techniques such as deep relaxation, meditation, suggestion, mm. positive thinking. Mm. So where literature of Protestant ethic had advocated like industry, dogged persistence, struggle to climb, ladder of success, new thought encouraged readers to relax, take it easy, remain calm. And growth and health were said to come through discovery and use of inner resources rather than through the participation in the external These world. are mutually exclusive and yeah. diametrically opposed philosophies. Yeah. So around this time is when um, psychologists and doctors, not really psychologists, but doctors start diagnosing nervousness uh-huh. and um, they blame it on um, modern civilization. To quote one Brooklyn doctor, they blamed it on steam power, press, the telegraph, sciences, and the mental activity of women. Oh, say more. <laughs> yes. So authors of this day reflected this situation. So all of this industry, you know, with – and I get it. With life changing so fast, it's like social media. We uh-huh. have anxiety related to social media. Suddenly there's – the 24-hour news cycle yes. is making us all so anxious. So suddenly like working in a factory – on yes. machines and having like information coming so fast. And not as much leisure time. Like, yes. And we didn't have this whole eight hour workday idea in place. People were working 16 hours. Yes. And- so authors of this day reflected the situation. Okay. And this author, Stephen Starker, says that self help books, like other forms of literature, reflect their social cultural context, revealing something of the needs, wishes, and fears of the individuals of their period. Absolutely. And that's why it feels so important to say, who is this author? How did they grow up? What were their formative life experiences? Yes. And where, like, what lens are they coming at this with? Yes. And so we've come to your homework. <gasps> say it. Which is taking a holistic look at the needs, wishes, and fears of individuals right now. Oh. What is a self-help book that you would like? Think about it. That I would And you think like- would sell. Does that make sense? Wait, that I would like to write? That you, or to buy. Do you know what I'm saying? Like taking into consideration that self-help books like like TV and movies are a reflection of the needs, wishes, and fears of the current population. Oh, this is fascinating. So that'll be your, just, just, and it doesn't have, you know, no title. Does it have to exist or can I say like one that covers XYZ? Either. Okay. Great. That's cool. Thanks, Lise. So by 1910, New Thought and Mind Cure were appearing in nearly 100 magazines and paper. Okay, and also a new interest in the subconscious mind. Freud had introduced the subconscious mind. Okay, Freud. Now, what is interesting to note is that the American version of the subconscious mind uh, and unconscious was not Freud's seething cauldron of sexual and aggressive energies, but a benevolent source of boundless power and creativity, almost a wish-granting fairy godmother. The Puritan preoccupation with conscious controls and restraints was cheerfully set aside in favor of rapport with the mysteries and possibilities of the subconscious mind. This sort of positive, optimistic approach to a psychodynamic psychology was the precursor to the humanistic psychology movement that later developed in the United States. It also sounds like... It's born of people who are feeling like we are all cogs in a wheel and yes. we don't really matter. So then to think, I have infinite depth and divinity and this psycho yes. mind-body connection. Like, 
No, that's really exciting to hear when you're like, I show up and my boss doesn't care and I'm looking at a bleak life and like. So here's something really fucking cool that happened. All of this is fascinating. Um, I just like that it's like self-help in the context of time, history, and other movements. It's a, I, if I had known how much I love history, I would have majored in history right? in college. I didn't discover it till my last like two years. Probably because you didn't have a, a good storyteller as a as a history teacher. Yes. Mm-hmm. I, oh my, this is, okay. So wait, so what's fucking cool? Okay. So eventually, obviously, Mind Cure ran afoul of two institutions. Mm-hmm. You can imagine medicine Thank and you. religion. Thank you. <laughs> um, these establishments were like, fuck no. Um, practitioners treated a variety of illnesses by mental and spiritual means, frequently without the benefit of training in either, these mind cure practitioners, right? Yeah. But medicine and religion had to do something, and psychotherapy was born. Bam. So medical establishment, the medical establishment could accept Mm-hmm. Take that back. <laughs> the medical establishment could accept the notion that psychological principles influenced health, yeah. right? And the religious establishment could look into counseling the sick according to psychological and spiritual principles. Uh huh. So the church started their counseling. Yep. And medic and medicine <gasps> recognized psychology. Oh my god! Church didn't do counseling before this. I mean, they did. Like obviously, the Catholic Church had, pre- but not kind of counseling like yes. we think of now. Like sit down with a rabbi. We're going to go over some things that you're worried about. Yes. Wow. It was more prescriptive rather than. Wow. Does that make sense? So which ra- which I will just say. That's a positive to come out of this mind, body, but only in reaction to it. But only in reaction because, like, as we know, cognitive behavioral therapy is wildly important and it can eventually those things. Yes. Yeah. And this rightfully returned the control to medicine and religion. And the author notes sell a hell of a lot of health-oriented self-help books along the way. Look, I just want a time machine because I could crush it. <laughs> and he then. says it's a measure of the impact of new thought that it was able to make medicine and religion work together. Yeah. Yeah, because they it feels like there's no better way to unite than against a common yeah. enemy. And, they were and like, that's what they we did. We gotta fucking do something yeah. about this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is okay. like succession. Chapter I've never four, seen that show, but it feels approaching like Approaching the mainstream self-help and the establishment. So this is the rise of psychology, basically. And um during this period of prosperity, uh, which is I guess we're now we're kind of into um gosh, sorry. Uh, the years after World War One. Okay, this is what we're talking about. Uh, into like the crash of 1929. Okay. So during the rise of prosperity up to, uh-huh. um, psychology and psychiatry came to permeate the American culture, generating new fascination with inner life and possibilities. This is up to the stock market crash? Uh-huh. Okay. Um, and the cult of new thought was replaced by the cult of science. And healing became less a matter of spiritual re-education than a professional diagnosis and treatment. Yep. And the influence of Freud's psychoanalysis swept across the land and behaviorism and its antagonists. So Freud was one and behaviorism behaviorism was its antagonist, was born in the work of John Watson. And both schools of thought were to have an immense impact on self-help literature. And what a time to be alive, to be sitting around in your flapper dress in the 1920s with your friends drinking champagne cocktails saying... Can you believe? Yeah, well, here and here's why. He's also putting it into context. So World War One was a traumatic event for Americans. Oh, yes. And many felt disillusioned afterward because mm-hmm. they thought they were getting into this for like all these high lofty ideals. Yeah. So many Europeans died. Many Americans died. And afterwards, 
they felt disillusioned, if not betrayed, and this anti-war sentiment swept across the nation. Yes. And they started wondering about human nature and the act of war and this major transition away from self-sacrifice and restraint, which were Protestant ideals, mm -hmm. useful during wartime. Mm -hmm. Maybe psychology could help if if at least to turn inward. So in the 20s, Americans became obsessed with sex. Songs on the radio, <laughs> racing movies, books, hemlines moved up, the flappers Ooh, appeared. Yeah. Contraception was readily available. Women could think and speak about sexual satisfaction. Mm -hmm. Automobile gave teenagers sex lives. Mm -hmm. This weakening of the Victorian morality and family structure. Women were demanding greater social and political equity. Some two million women had gone to work during World War I. Uh -huh. Between 1914 and 1929, the divorce rate more than doubled. I didn't know that. Yes. Parents were being besieged by competing parental theories, rapidly growing cities, skyscrapers. Basically, it was this huge time of change, and psychology was expected to help. And all of these different ideas yes. of thought are yes. making couples be like, I disagree with yes. you. I think my power is within. And they're like, no, you've got to Yes. And then struggle. in the 1930s, the Great Depression came. And then everyone was like, we should probably stick together. And the psychic trauma caused on the populace was immense and immediate. Skirt hems went down. Preoccupation with sex disappeared. Conservative manners returned. And this new thought pastor, Dr. Emmett Fox, kept preaching in like larger and larger crowds until he sold out Carnegie Hall. And he always had side rooms for book sales. Oh, my God. <laughs> and his books were more acceptable to the religious mainstream but <sighs> remaining because they were remaining close to the words of the scriptures but were still new thought. Right. So – there's a but then there was a different guy, psychologist Henry Link. He prescribed a rejection of the selfish, wish, wishful thinking of New Thought for values of industry and good works, which is very Protestant, right? Yes. But then there was a third option, Henry Fostick. You're welcome, Robert Biswasdiener. Thank you. You're loving the same. <laughs> so. Um, here we go. What's particularly striking about Fosdick's bestseller? He wrote um, Harry Emerson Fosdick. He was a champion of liberal Protestant theology, and he wrote, what is the name of Oh, On Being a Real Person in 1943. Oh, hey. Thank that's you. That's some shade. What's particularly striking about his bestseller is its sophistication. The message of new thought, self-help literature, and its various incarnations have been rather simple, even primitive. Wish, and it shall be yours. Mm. Link's book, for all its claims to scientific evidence and justification, was naively dependent on simple correlations and dichotomous views. In Fosdick's book, one finds considerable depth and breadth of knowledge, literary, psychological, spiritual, all woven together in a thoughtful presentation. He said, a mature and genuine person is a supreme work of art, a symphony, whose constituent factors are noises that by themselves can be raucous and dissonant and whose glory lies in the way they are put together. That's beautiful. So, so we had Emmett Fox, yeah. who was New Thought. We had Link, who was mm -hmm. Protestant, and Fosdick, who kind of merged the two. Yeah. These were really interesting um, kind of three prominent leaders at yes. this time. Um, During the Depression era. That's right. Okay. Um, and this was approaching the mainstream. Now, Chapter 5, we're going to—he just kind of goes over some numbers here. This is the early blockbusters. Well, and also, this is when publishing was like—you didn't—not everybody—like— Television was not a thing. Yeah. You know, so it's like reading was the thing. You were like the perfect segue because chapter five, um, I'm gonna go over a few numbers, not much detail, but he talks about three different sections religious books, business books, and self help books for parents and kind of gives okay. some context. Okay. So in 1946, Rabbi Liebman wrote Peace of Mind and it went on to sell over a million books by 1956. So a million over 10 years. 
Wow. Which is huge. And the population was not 8 billion back <laughs> right, then. So right. like a million was a much higher percentage. Right. Business books, he brings up and tells the story of Dale Carnegie. Uh-huh. And I'm going to read page 63 to 64 because we have Dale Carnegie to thank for self-help industry as it is today. Oh, my God. The story of Carnegie's remarkable success as a self-help author cannot be understood fully without reference to an important development in the publishing industry of the late 1930s. Mm -hmm. A publisher named Robert DeGraff had set out to develop a line of inexpensive paperback books. In collection with... Uh, in collaboration with Simon & Schuster, he founded a company called Pocket Books. It was by no means the first paperback house, but many earlier efforts had been met with only limited success while others had failed completely. Many publishers were biased against the paperback book, fearing that paperback sales of a work would destroy hardcover demand for the same work. As a test of this theory, Simon & Schuster let Pocket Books uh, publish a 25-cent paper edition of one of its bestsellers, another work by Dale Carnegie, but only in the test market state of Texas. Okay. The paperback sold more than 30,000 copies in two months and did not appear to reduce sales of the hardcover edition. With this concern abated, Pocket Books was permitted a national release of How to Win Friends and Influence People and sold about 700,000 paperback copies in the first six months. So that was the first paperback book? Nationwide release. Well, Whoa. not the first, but the first bestseller. Right. The Oracle had taken on a new form, and in this guise, it would be able to reach vast numbers of people. What had Car and then he goes on. What had Carnegie to say that might interest six and a half million Americans? Oh, not much, you guys. One might expect, on the basis of these numbers, a revelation of considerable mag magnitude. Observers of the Carnegie phenomenon, however, have been quite critical of his advice. Thank you. It has been described as superficial, insincere, manipulative, and worse. <laughs> Do you know what's so funny? That was almost a hundred years ago. Yes. And we just, to all of our listeners, we recently, within the last, like, I don't know, four months, five months, reviewed how to win friends and influence people. And these are all the things we found superficial, yeah. manipulative. It's nothing new. It's not a revelation. Well, remember that a major theme of his book was the futility of criticism. <laughs> but he, he was just this common sense, down-to-earth, pragmatic approach that won over the public. There had already been a flood of books on psychoanalysis and behaviorism. But what were the use of the Oedipus complex or reinforcement schedules at the office? So right. This was, he, he targeted towards business people. Yeah. The psychologists and psychoanalysts used highly impressive but forbidding vocabulary, and they were in violent disagreement on many issues and seemed quite removed from the workaday world of men and women. Yep. The working individual was tired of being impressed but confused. Mm -hmm. Simple, direct, practical advice was required, and that would lead to clear-cut gains. Yep. And Carnegie obliged. Oh, um, did he? His real name is not Carnegie. Not. And that's so manipulative. Um, then I want to talk real quickly about self-help for parents. So Dr. Spock is like the name in child care books. From, I don't know this. It's like because he's it's 100 years ago. But baby boomers, right? They came home from the war and then they had all these children. And then yes. they were like, how do I raise them? And like, <laughs> all these psychologists how? and behaviorists have different competing views. Yeah. So here's what's interesting. Um. He was initially approached about writing a self-help book on childcare in 1938, but he rejected this approach, feeling too inexperienced to attempt the project. Because he was the first doctor who was trained in like medicine and pediatrics and mm. psychology, I think. Um, some five years later, after a similar offer was made by, guess who? Pocket Books. Oh. The four-year publishing house that had such success with Dale Carnegie. Mm. He was then more receptive and had particularly liked the idea of producing an inexpensive guide that would be available to all. 
So a 1997, okay, 40 years later, listing of bestsellers ranked his book as the number one all-time bestseller with over 23 million copies sold. And an 84 estimate put the total closer to 33 million. So I bet your parents had a Dr. Spock book. Possibly. The Spock phenomenon is best understood in its historical context beginning at the turn of the century. The immediately preceding decades of the 19th century had not been kind to American children. Mm -hmm. Infant mortality was quite high, Mm -hmm. with death claiming as many as 160 of every 1,000 infants. Oh, I was like, those numbers don't add up. It it not only took all 100, but 60 more. Um, Many of these deaths, experts asserted, were preventable. Preventable, but the necessary advances in sanitation and nutrition were not achieved until well into the 20th century. Oh, yeah. Doctors did not wash under, their hands. They didn't wash their hands. So they'd go from like an infant autopsy of a child who had died from a disease and then go deliver a That's baby. Right. Many who survived the cradle soon faced the hardships of daily labor in the factories, mills, or on the farm. Mm. Some 2 million American children under age 15 were working full time by 1900, often under severe conditions. Aww. The need to pr- improve the lot of children in society was one of the motivating forces behind the progressive social reforms of mm-hmm. the next two decades. Mm-hmm. So Dr. Spock's book was a timely, timely in a manner of ways. Mm-hmm. Publication at the beginning of the baby boom was fortuitous. There's a large audience yes. wanting it. Its appearance at the start of the paperback revolution meant that it enjoyed previously unheard of distribution and availability as well as low price. Mm-hmm. Parents all over the country could both find it and afford it, and it brought it into many homes. And for the first time, the message that parents and children might be freed from rigors of behavioral schedules and could even look forward to some fun. Um, and oh, that's big. So, yes. And so children uh, were redefined in a new and positive light as loving, lovable, and possessing a sort of natural wisdom to guide their own growth and development. Wow. So this was huge. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, his original was kind of, it didn't meet everybody where they're at, but he it's it's been updated since. So chapter six, this is all about sex and health books and context of the decades. It's fascinating. I'm not covering I it. I bet it's fascinating. Yeah. Um, chapter seven. What's that one book that was everywhere? The Joy of Sex. Yeah. That was like at all my yeah. friends' parents' houses. But he also talks about how there were these pamphlets called the Aristotle pamphlets from England that were like. Sounds a, racy. They, well, they published under pseudonym because it was illegal. But it talked about like men and women and sexual gratification and pleasure and like how to be healthy in a marriage. Wow. It was and like birth control and things like that. Um, chapter seven, the Oracle at mid century. So just a quick thing here. Paperback sales in 1939 were 3 million. Okay. In 1950, they were 200 million. Holy (laughs) shit. But there was a lot of debate. Is that a population boom as well? I think it's that, but also that now it was a, it was a real industry. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but there was lots of debate. Would paperback books be trash? Or would they be making classics available to all? Like, right, right, was, right. This is also Do during, I trust something that's not in a hard This cover. is also the McCarthy era. Oh, and there was my like God. some recommended book burnings, right? This is I always forget. Like right now I'm like, we're in such a volatile political and socioeconomic climate. And then it's like you go back there and you're like McCarthyism mm-hmm. and self-help, and this is all terrifying. Yeah. Well, because McCarthy's were like, it's cheap paperback produced so communists will have easy access yeah. to reproduce their right. Right? terrible thoughts. Yes. So in the uh, quickly I'm going to cover diet and health and new the, then this new pop phenomena. Okay. So diet and health. 1920s nutrition was a new science. 1940 the book You Are What You Eat. Oh my God. <laughs> Reprinted as late as 1971 uh-huh. gave us the quote balanced diet. 
That was the first time it was used. Okay. So we use the terms you are what you eat uh-huh. and a balanced diet yeah. almost every day. Every day. Um, and then there's uh, – uh, I'm going to cover a new pop phenomena, which is – what, what's your thought? How does he cover all of this in 173 pages? Because it's fascinating it and is. it feels comprehensive. And it you're is. you're giving us an overview I'm, and I'm of flying his book, through it. But I feel like I'm getting so much information. How it's, does he pack this book this way? Because he's academic. It's amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's it could easily be like you know somebody's doctoral thesis. I wish um, it were mine. I know, right? Um, so 1952, Norman Vincent Peale produces and releases The Power of Positive Thinking. I loved his movie Get Out. Thank you. Thank you. And um, by 1977, an est- Misty's stomach. <laughs> you need to eat breakfast before I you come do. here. I eat these. I I let myself sleep in and then I eat these flimsy protein bars. And then halway through our recording sessions, my stomach's I like, not have a protein bar. No, I know. This. I need. I need like a full breakfast. Yes, I need like four eggs and a full avocado you and a, a bag English. of bread. You need a full English. Oh, I love a full English. Okay, so I'm going to read you from um, page 107 here. Okay, this top paragraph. The basic premises of the power of positive thinking were presented over and over, applied to one topic and another, with myriad anecdotal examples. Prosperity and success, anger management, health, problem solving, and such were approached Mm -hmm. in the same manner with slightly differing technical procedures. And it should be apparent by now, it says, the content of his book fell squarely within the mainstream of new thought religious movement. Mm -hmm. All the basic elements were there. Applied religion, determined optimism, visualizations, relaxation, supremacy of the wish, positive yeah. affirmations, mental exercises, prayer power, universal vibrations, for mind everybody. cure, and so on. Right. Which is also a great way for us to now determine if something is new thought. Yes. By its techniques that it yes. applies. Mind cure. Yes. Determinism. Um, but Peel, like other new thought figures, was primarily concerned with the inner life of the individual to the relative exclusion of social, economic, and political contexts. And if what he had to say wasn't new, why was he such a success? Yeah, why? Three reasons. Here we go. One, he was hot. <laughs> Two, he had a great voice. Um, there were First, there were the factors that always made new thought work appeal. It's individualism. Mm-hmm. It's promises of health and wealth with minimal effort. Mm-hmm. It's magical, wish-fulfilling quality. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, also, it didn't limit its scope to success alone or mind cure alone, but included both elements and more. Okay. Um, it simply promised everything. Yeah. No. <laughs> and it also incorporated enough psychological terms to make the content seem appropriately scientific and contemporary to lay audiences. Yeah. And it was gluten free. Thank you. Um, beyond that, it uh, several social needs and trends were involved in the success. Americans in the 1950s had been involved in two major wars in a relatively brief yes, span of time, a fact which may have helped initiate the religious revival of the decade. Right. Um, he and other writers of the day both contributed to and profited by this natural na- national return to religion. Mm-hmm. And another group of large book purchasers were middle-class women. And mm-hmm. so, although they were increasingly liberated from household labors, they had not yet established themselves and were desperately seeking ways to improve this their lot in life. This is mid-century, right? Yes. So this is uh, The Feminine Mystique yes. by Betty Friedan. A third set of factors involved with his success had to do with his exceptional mastery of the self-help genre. After his early unsuccessful attempts, he finally learned and perfected the basis of producing best-selling literature. 
Beyond simplification and the requisite engaging anecdotes, he had added the crucial element of, quote, technique. Inspiration was supplemented by the nuts and bolts of, quote, how-to-ism. Most chapters, therefore, had their 10 rules, 12 steps, practical suggestions, worry-breaking formulas, and so on. 111 ways to raise your vibration. Every reader emerged with concrete step-by-step instructions on how to achieve health, wealth, and happiness. It is just such specific instruction that has become the hallmark of best-selling self-help work. It sounds like he really stuck to the aphorism, if you fail, try, try again. He did. Thank you, McGuffey, reader. So chapter eight, um, Selfish Years, Pop Psychology, and the Me Generation. So self-expression and self-actualization, I'm using quotes, and these new approaches were free from complications and parlance of actual theory. Very quick question. Yeah. Yeah. Because I feel like I sort of understand it contextually, but not actually definitively. What is the difference between self-expression and self-actualization? Like, is actualization, I am who I want to be, I've actualized, and then self-expression is like... I'm able to communicate I'm it. able to, like, I I, I am a, a great communicator or a dancer, and that's I what know. I do. And that's great. It's a great question. I'm not be, sure. That's going to be a mini-sode. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this is the time of... Um, so, yeah, so self-actualism, all this stuff really was absent of theory. It just promised, like, relief from pain and neurosis and ordinary unhappiness. And this mm-hmm. is the time of, like, est and nude marathons and gestalt therapy and rebirthing and, like, all of this wow. time, right? These, These different more radical ideas. Modalities, yeah. yeah. So this <laughs> plastic surgeon wrote this bestseller called Psycho-Cybernetics in 1960. Oh, I hate the name. A guy wrote um, Games People Play in 1964. These were all very, these set things. And then I'm Okay, You're Okay was written in 1967. I like that. It was I like very, that title. Well, I'm was, okay, you're okay. That was okay. a big one. There's like, it's either, there's four things. Mm-hmm. Either I'm okay, you're okay. I'm okay, you're not okay. Mm-hmm. I'm not okay, you're okay. And I'm not okay, you're not okay. And those were the four <laughs> like relationships that you could have had with a parent. Oh, oh. The rejection of psychoanalysis and the promise of the uh, selfist rapid cure or growth uh-huh. became regular features of most selfish selfist approaches. So okay. like get get fast, get get quick fast. What am I trying to say? Get healed quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Did you watch The Americans? Uh, I have seen some episodes. In the later seasons, he goes to Est. Oh, my God. Which was like this huge. Mm-hmm. And they just sit around talking. It's really funny. Isn't Est, wasn't that, they had really radical, did, did people die in Est sessions? I don't know if they died, but it was like, if you're not happy, leave your marriage. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Um, in the context of the selfist 1960s, a new wave of feminism emerged, the feminine mystique in 1963. Yes, it did. And in all, quote, third force works, goodness was considered the natural tendency for all, and badness was seen as imposed from the outside through life experience. Right. Open Marriage was written in 1972. Holy shit. Your Erroneous Zones by Wayne Dyer was written in 1976. Okay, Wayne. And during this era, its self-help extended its presence beyond bookstore and drugstores and huge chain books stores mm-hmm. started showing up in malls. Oh. Talk shows began parading self-help authors. Uh-huh. Paperback racks appeared in supermarkets and variety stores. Oh my God, because they weren't those? there before. Yeah. yeah. Well, and also, it's really interesting that, you know, uh, the big critique with the feminine mystique is Oh, yeah. Okay. That's really relevant, but only to middle class white women, white married women. And so all of the critiques coming from like women of color who are like, we've always been in the workforce and we work three jobs and go fuck yourself, you know, really it set the stage for this very critical and important discourse. Yeah. 
We're almost done. Hang in. I'm so here for this. Thank you. All day. Chapter nine, healthy, wealthy, and wise for finding fulfillment in the 80s. I'm good. Did I, I say, did it. Did I say for finding? For finding fulfillment <laughs> in the <laughs> 80s. Uh, psychological self in the 80s had taken a backseat to the f- physical and economic self. Mm. So it was no longer about psychological self. It yep. was all physical self, lots about diet and exercise books in the 80s and their mm-hmm. flaws and successes. This is, he talks a lot about that. It's just super problematic. Yeah. Everyone's doing oh. cocaine, wearing blue eyeshadows and shoulder pads and pretending they don't have an eating disorder. It, he gives a great. He says, rather than a response to scientific advance, the upsurge of interest in the maintenance and improvement of the physical self was linked to an important social psychological trend. That is, by the late 1970s, an increasing number of potential self-help readers had entered their 30s. By the early 1980s... (laughs) I like the way you said their 30s. Many had reached the venerable age of 35. He does have a little bit of a cheeky attitude sometimes. (laughs) The, quote, baby boomers, post-war children, the, quote, me generation, the Spock babies, were making the difficult transition beyond young adulthood. Determined not to, quote, go gentle into that good night, (laughs) they were uh, to make a valiant effort to retain their youthful features and figures, and they looked to self-help works for support and advice. The the volume of your hair is directly proportionate to your self-worth. And he says they did not have to look much further than their local bookstore or supermarket. Very convenient. Yes. And then the economic self... 80s books were concerned with becoming a winner in life, Mm -hmm. becoming rich. And so the boomers' feelings of worth, um, he says right here, compounding the, quote, narcissistic narcissistic injury associated with aging and the recognition (laughs) of mortality, baby boomers suffered additional blows to their feelings of worth and optimism. Mm. In 1973, an Arab oil embargo created a sudden and dramatic shift in American affluence and power. The strongest, richest country in the world suddenly was deliberately and thoroughly humiliated by a group of oil exporting Arab nations that had decided to wrest some wealth from the Western world by carefully managing the flow and price of its product. Mm -hmm. The United States, it turned out, was highly vulnerable to such tactics and for a time found itself without sufficient gasoline for its oversized automobiles and heating oil for its homes. An energy crisis was declared and the nation's household were asked to turn down the thermostats, add insulation, turn off unnecessary lights, take local vacations, and so on. And so because of this, there are books like 1974, You Can Profit from a Monetary Crisis, Um, uh, 1975, Winning Through Intimidation, 19... uh, This is all like, hey, something good can come out of this. Yes. But it was like he wrote... Corda, 1977 bestseller, success, exclamation point. He specifically wrote it was okay to be greedy, ambitious, looking out for number one, Machiavellian, and selectively deceitful. I mean, that is my hermeneutical lens. Thank you. So I get it. Thank you. So all of these books were like increasing like – searching for excellence and like to be the best, to be number one. Well, and saying like, by the way, it's all about you. Yeah. Self-help. Emphasis on the self. So there was body, economic self, and then wisdom and and fulfillment. And then in the late 70s to early 80s, right? So it transitioned from youthful, introspective, affluent, optimistic to economic distress, midlife turmoil, and ongoing reassessment. And then this author makes... Uh, an estimation that baby boom and readership will keep body-oriented issues such as diet, nutrition, and exercise popular for years to come. He was right. He was right. He's super right. Chapter 10, he says, self-help literature is prescriptive, and he's kind of summing up. Mm-hmm. Um, it's prescriptive and aimed at a mass audience. And he asked some really interesting questions that I just want to read. He says, 
increasingly, professionals in psychiatry, medicine, psychology, social work, religion, and law are called upon to consider whether self-help prescriptions represent a significant danger to the public. Should clients be warned away from them? Should such works be regulated by legislation in the manner of prescription medications? Are authors or publishers responsible in the event of a mishap? Are critics of self-help works liable for making public statements about them? Are we? Professionals are finding it necessary as well to consider how ethics of their professions apply to the writing and publication of popular books. Are popularized books written by colleagues to be considered responsible and respectable, ill-advised, misguided, or clearly unethical? Consumer groups dedicated to protecting the public from misrepresentation, outright fraud and quackery, and the physical, psychological, economic threats these entail are also concerned with the character quality of self-help books. Are self-help consumers satisfied with their purchase advice? If so, are their judgments sound? Have they been deceived? Are they deluded? Should consumer advocates be lobbying for legislative regulation, warning labels, or other quality control measures? I mean, those were questions I was like, I never fucking thought about that. No, I my jaw's on the floor. Right. So he did some research on his own in the Northwest. Yeah. And basically surveys of health professionals and readers, lots of people read them. Most people report um, more good than harm. And the but From like, self-help? Yeah. He's like, okay. but these results cannot be generalized. Right. Um, then he does some great talk about quackery, fraud, fad, and pop. Quackery? I'll just do a quick, because um, he, he writes it so well. Uh, here we go. At the same time, self-help should not be accepted without consideration of the broader context. For example, Mm. the early mind cure literature of the new thought may have been naively mentalistic, but it is also represented, but it also represented a reaction against medical practices that were often brutally physicalistic, relatively primitive, and potentially harmful, like leeching and at the time. Or like at the beginning of surgery when everyone's dying and you're like, maybe there's a better way. Yes. And he also just makes a great point that what we do, um, I'm going to make sure that recognizing quackery, but I I do want to say he makes the point that facts and opinions remain interchangeable in self-help and that shouldn't be often. Yes, it does. And again, it's that false. Yes. What is that called from Aristotle's way? That false equivalency? We need to revisit that. I think it's a false And also that the critique of of pop culture is often from like, a higher culture and we have to make it low culture but it can be helpful and then also most self-help is just it's it's here he says it's not possible to predict whether any particular individual would benefit from any particular program Hmm. the empirical validation of self-help books remains of limited value to the general consumer right and that Mm -hmm. validation studies take years yeah um and then to recognize quackery, I do want to point this so we should notice. Um, in Consumer Health uh, uh, in 1976, that's a book, an author noted several criteria for recognizing quackery. Claims what to, is quackery like exactly? fraud. Yeah. Claims to secret remedies, uh, formula, claim, or formula and claims to have the cure for many or all diseases. Yes. Guarantees of a quick cure. Uh-huh. Antagonism toward the medical establishment and uh-huh. its customary practices. Invention of high-sounding organizations or foundations to add authenticity or authority, authority to claims. Uh-huh. Use of scare techniques. Uh-huh. Use of famous people to promote techniques. The secret, the secret, the secret. And the reliance secret. upon testimonials for evidence of effectiveness. Oh, the secret, the secret, the secret. He did suggest in his final thing that um, 
in this in this chapter that a standardized introductory page should be at the beginning of every self-help book saying saying that like there's no there's no scientific proof that self-help books There should be a disclaimer. Basically. Um, Read this was, book at your these, own risk. These two researchers, Glasgow and Rosen, they've recommended that all commercially published self-help books contain a standardized introductory page reporting on the number and types of subjects tested within the manual, conditions of testing, percentage of subse- subjects completing the program, immediate and long-term results, that kind of thing. Wow. Which I thought was fascinating. And then in yeah, the last— show us your credibility yes. up front. Yes. And then in the last bit, um, which is— uh, chapter nine conclusion, the message of the Oracle. He just says, American individualism, I believe, is the wellspring from which nearly all self-help materials flow. It generates an urgent message of free will, personal power, and dogged optimism. You can be successful. You can be healthy. You mm-hmm. can be creative. You can be beautiful. You can realize your wishes. The particular technology offered is quite secondary to the inspirational message of individualism proffered by the self-help Oracle. So I just thought he was great. And he said that the greatest danger, this is the last thing I'll say, the greatest single um, problem with self-help related works, I believe, has to do with the enormous variety of books available to the public and the haphazard way in which they are selected. Yes. And the danger exists in the form of a mismatch between the technology offered and the particular physical and emotional needs of the reader. Yes. The danger is greatest, I believe, when the book is highly prescriptive and offered in the context of a closed philosophy that minimizes opportunities for discovering corrective information. Yes. Oh my God, Stephen Starker. Same page. Yeah. So I thank you Lisa, for letting me get through that. that. Ama- There's no, so much, and I know that was amazing. Okay, Lisa, did this book need to be written? One hundred percent. Hundred. And I'm so glad I read it. Yes. I feel like I understand where these books come I'm from. I'm so glad you read it, and it is just fascinating to think. <clears throat> To also see this podcast in a larger context of like, we're all still wrestling with self-help. We're yeah. all, humans have always been asking themselves these questions. Yeah. How can we be more optimized and more fulfilled and happier? And do I matter? And I want to know I'm valid and yeah. all that stuff. So clearly he's gotten a lot right. Yes. What did he get wrong? Um, it is an academic text. Mm-hmm. So he didn't do it wrong in that sense. Yeah. I wish he would write a version that is palatable, <laughs> that is secular. Do you know what I mean? That right. is like right. not for academics, but truly. A little more accessible. Yeah, is more like meta of like, which oh. self-help book should should you read? Here's yeah. an academic's approach and like recommendation. Yeah. And I would add, change the title, make the cover flashier. <laughs> no, seriously. Yeah. Because then people will want to read it, will want, there's nothing sexy about a supermarket. Yeah, this is by I mean? transaction publishers. So it may be self-published. Sure, yeah. but like if we were to rebrand this, re like rewrite it, rebrand it, give it, make it a beautiful gift to give someone, this could be a really fucking cool book, right? Um, who's this perfect for? It's perfect for people like me, yes, who are um, conflicted about self help uh-huh. and who are uh, uh, what's the word I'm using that my face is making. Skeptical. Uh, ske- yeah. yeah. You were like winking a little. One like eye, one eye was shut. shut. Um, I'm, you're skeptical of it. Yeah. And you don't know like where the fuck it comes from. Right? Yes. Like what? How why? did we get here? Who made the secret? Well, now I know exactly who made it. Yes. <laughs> yes. And, and I know why. And I understand why it came to be in that context. Yes. And who's it perfect for? Oh, wait, who is it not? Wait, who's it's perfect for me? Who is it not perfect for? Yeah. It's not perfect for people who are steeped into 
new thought and don't want to have like any mm-hmm. challenge to it. I yeah. think. Because once you go like, oh, this is the history of it. Here's where it came from. Here's yeah. The- or people who don't really want to critique self-help at all or understand yeah. it as a genre and whole. And right. just like to dabble. And so my homework is to think about, given society's needs, Current. cravings today. What, what self-help, self-help authors are going to reflect in that? Like what kind of books or what Like what kind currently? of book do I think would hit pretty hard? Mm-hmm. Uh, publishing companies, if you're still listening. <laughs> We have several Tune in ideas. for the next mini-sode, and you'll, right. you'll hear our thoughts. That was amazing. Thank you, guys. I know that was long. Thank you so much. I've done I, a couple I, of long episodes back-to-back. I loved back to back. it. We could have turned it into a two-parter, but this just felt like we were on a roll, and yeah. that's amazing. Thank you so much, Lisa. Thank and you. may our um, critical thinking about self-help continue to be abundant. abundant. Go Help Yourself, a comedy self-help podcast to make life suck less, was produced by Misty Stinnett, Lisa Linky, and Matt Sav. Our theme song was also written by Matt Sav. He's amazing. <laughs> do you want to get in touch? You do. Email us at gohelpyourselfpodcast at gmail.com. And you know, you can also find us on the social medias, Instagram at gohelpyourselfpodcast, Twitter at podcast, or check out our website, gohelpyourselfpodcast.com. And if you liked our podcast, please subscribe, rate and review us on iTunes to help other people discover our show. It's really the least you can do. And why don't you tell all of your friends? Bye! Bye.